Now we have been studying the wise words of the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we have seen uh, him pin his journal of sorts as he records uh, a variety of observations about life under the sun. And he has uh, witnessed and tried to describe to us that things on the other side of the fence are not better, and that life is not going to be easier or better or satisfactory because we have more wealth or more possessions or more power or any of those kinds of things that we often look for in life and think that that will give us the the, the great lasting satisfaction and deep value uh, that we're longing for. As we come into Ecclesiastes chapter 7, the teacher makes a a little bit of a departure in in that he's not really recording his observations any longer, uh, but now is going to offer some wisdom to us. And so uh, in chapter 7, we're going to look at some better wisdom. And I, I put the better in quotations because as we read the early verses, you will notice that he is going to uh, paint a picture for us that, that this one thing will be better than another. And he will do that a number of times uh, in this description of, of what is useful for us uh, as we walk in this world. And so uh, as we read these uh, pictures, as he imparts to us this wisdom, uh, consider the practical value of, of what he is saying. And uh, we'll spend some t- longer time on some parts than others. Uh, but it, it's always interesting that just like the Proverbs, uh, these statements are very short. And the reason for that is to hopefully let you keep it in your mind. That you'll be memorable to you. That you will keep that short sentence uh, with you uh, on a daily basis as you think about these wise words as you live your life. And so uh, let's look at Ecclesiastes 7 and we will just begin with verse 1. He says, A good name is better than fine perfume in the day of one's death than the day of one's birth. And so, beginning with the, the better name, he says, it, it is better to have a, a good name than it is to even have the, the fine perfume. And uh, for us, that doesn't really register an awful lot to us. But understand in that society, that was very expensive. Uh, to be able to have a, a fine, luxurious perfume or an oil uh, was an extremely extravagant expense. Uh, you can think of a number of instances. Remember, uh, the sinful woman is uh, breaking open the alabaster jar of fragrant perfume or oil uh, to wash Jesus' feet, uh, which is the, an incredulous situation because of the immense expense that was being broken there. And, and here is this reference now that we need to, to place in our context somehow uh, of understanding this is a, a very expensive Article And here is the, the teacher telling us, you know, your reputation is even more valuable. A, a good name has even greater value and a greater worth and, and a greater expense uh, than even a fine perfume or a fine oil. Uh, which then should set us as a, as a reminder then that our reputation is something that needs to be cared for. Uh, that we need to be careful with. Don't realize how easy it is to damage a reputation. It it is a very fragile thing. 
And yet it is really something that is very important. Nobody, I don't believe anybody in here would raise their hand and say, well, I, I want people to look at me badly and to think ill of me and uh, think poorly of me. We want everybody to look at our lives and think, well, there's somebody who leads a good example. They, they have a godly life. And the decisions that they make are something that other people could look to as, as wise and thoughtful choices. We don't want to be somebody who's perceived as a fool. We don't want to be somebody who's perceived as, as practicing sinfulness. And, and so I want us to consider this, this picture here of reputation. That it is something of great value and it is so easily broken. And consider that when a reputation is broken, it is almost impossible to repair it. There are very few instances where you can regain the name and the reputation that has been lost. It is extremely challenging to be able to bring that back. I think of that uh, in the secular world. Uh, sports heroes carry such a great uh, love that everybody has of them until something goes wrong, until some sort of news comes out, and you can't get that back. Uh, for me, with sports, I think of like Kobe Bryant. Man, fantastic basketball player. Uh, always is, continues to be compared to Michael Jordan in every way of his abilities. But the sexual sin that he committed will never leave. <laughs> the stain of what he did will never depart. Now, you have to understand that. It doesn't matter how many years go by. You're not going to forget Colorado with him. And all the legal turmoil that went on with all that. It just, that's the way it is. That's the way life works. And I think that's important to understand that sin damages our reputation, but especially sexual sin. I don't know why, but just laying it out there is fact. That sexual sin especially just destroys reputation. There's a lot of preachers that I know who've been destroyed by sexual sins. Their reputation completely tarnished. Uh can repent of the sins, can be forgiven of the sins, most certainly. But you have to understand that those kinds of things stick and the reputation gets broken and the name becomes destroyed. And so we have to be very careful. We often go through our decisions and go through life and we often really don't think about the consequences of our sins. We don't really think about the consequences of our decisions. And I know for certain one of the things that probably never passes uh, into our minds is that what will this do to my reputation? You know, what will this do in terms of damage about what people think about me? And it's not that we're selfish or conceited in that kind of terminology of reputation, but just we don't want people thinking of us as these awful, terrible, uh, despicable human beings because of the actions that we take. We want to be reflecting the glory of God. We want to show a light into the world. And I want you to consider that not only do sins damage your own reputation, they can't help but damage your parents' reputation. Uh, boy, especially when you're younger. Even as you get older, there's still a little bit of a connection that takes place. Uh, but when you're a teenager, when you're in, in uh, middle school, even in college, the decisions that you make have a tremendous reflection upon your parents. 
And you make these decisions in high school and college in terms of sexual sins, in terms of sins that are very bad choices in life that others would look down upon you and God would certainly condemn. Uh, It's not just you that has the damage. Your parents receive the damage. What used to be the look at the great job they did with their kids and all that becomes, whew, (laughs) I can't believe they made that decision. What happened there? You, You can't avoid it. That decision, that sinfulness, even reflects upon local churches. I had a situation in Arkansas where there was a fellow who engaged in a uh, a strange, I don't even understand how it happened, but it was some sort of fraud with 900 numbers. And it came to light that he was a member of the congregation that we were working at. And he went, ooh, that hurt. <laughs> that really took a blow to the reputation of the congregation in that small city. Understand, that's what sin does. Reputation is so easily broken. Isn't it fascinating that it is so hard to build up and yet so easily destroyed? It takes so much time to build up trust, to be able to build up a repertoire with another person and with a group of people. They know who you are and you have that basis of trust. And within an instant, that can all be destroyed and you may not ever get it back. And let's certainly consider that God's reputation. The most important thing, God's reputation is damaged. When we commit sin, when we choose to stray away from God, it is God's reputation that's damaged. As we wear the the label of Christian, as we try to reach out into the world, if they see within us a life of sinfulness, a life of deceit and debauchery and evil, that's God's reputation that's being destroyed. There's a number of reasons why people are cynical toward religion today, and, and I understand a lot of them. One of the reasons why is this, is because Christians by their actions have so defamed the, the name of God that nobody can believe that there's actually real people really striving to do what's right. It's all about money making or selfishness or whatever you can get out of it. The name of God gets destroyed in the process. So I think these are extremely wise words and a simple phrase that a good name is better than fine perfume. Consider your reputation before others, how easily it is destroyed. And the sins that we commit affect not only ourselves and bearing consequences of our actions, but the reputation bears the consequences. And it falls upon our parents and it falls upon other Christians and it certainly falls upon God. Let's consider the next set of better statements, the the rest of verse 1, and he continues the theme of these better statements of wisdom through verse 3. He says, The day of of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart. Grief is better than laughter, for when the face is sad, a heart may be glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. This is interesting because this is certainly counterintuitive. I don't know that any of us want to be walking into the house of mourning, especially when you 
uh, can tell uh, that verse 2 is closely linked to the day of one's death, the house of mourning is talking about a funeral scene. As he goes on there and describes that it is the, the fate of all mankind, he is clearly talking about uh, nobody wants to experience the loss of a loved one. Nobody wants to go into that scene. We would rather be in the house of pleasure. We would rather not think about all of those things. We don't want to think about that end result. We don't want that reality on our minds. We would rather just enjoy pleasure, have a good time, throw caution to the wind. Let's not worry about all those things. Why would the writer tell us? Why would the teacher of wisdom tell us that it is better to go into the house of mourning, that it is better to have grief than laughter, that it is better when the face is sad than glad, that it is better uh, to participate in those things than in the house of pleasure and joy. And I submit to you there's a lot of reasons. And one is uh, the house of mourning and grief always cause reflection. Without a doubt, in every circumstance, in every funeral, at every time that somebody passes, that always causes people to stop. Everybody finally stops for a minute and goes, wow, I need to really think about some things. There has never been, I think, a, a funeral in my life that I have attended or participated in where you haven't had people walking away talking about, well, I need to change my life. I need to do things differently. And unfortunately, that wears off pretty fast. Unfortunately, that feeling, that reflection slowly slips away. And we go back to the house of pleasure and the house of joy and, and we forget about all the things that, that we don't want to think about. But here is the reality. Life should not be taken for granted. We want to assume that we have all of this time ahead of us. We want to forget what the writer of Ecclesiastes told us. That there's a time for everything, that the seasons are constantly changing. You better appreciate and enjoy the time that you have now because you don't know how soon and how quickly things can be turned on its head and be completely changed. And here he just gives the warning. The, the, the wise go into the house and think about these things. The wise are the ones who don't want to be just frolicking in life and enjoying all the pleasures out there and not being thoughtful about the reality that waits us. Fools want to ignore the things that are going to come. That's what he describes. Oh, none of us want to be fools, but look, it's the heart, it's the heart of the fools. Uh, he says there in verse 4 that it's in the house, house of pleasure. Verse 3, the grief is better than laughter, for in the face of sad, the heart will be made glad. It, it, that, that seems counterintuitive. When it says the heart will be made glad, he's not talking about uh, when your face is sad, your emotions will be happy. That's not the essence of the heart. The heart and the mind are interconnected. That when the emotions are crushed, the mind thinks. The mind begins to ponder and consider. And we wake up to the reality of what's going on here around us. That we're not going to be here forever. We are not promised tomorrow. We are not given any duration of time. As much as we all, uh, as Americans, grab on to the I'm going to die when I'm ready to die and I'm going to die on my own terms and it's going to be the way that I want to go. Good luck with that because you don't have a choice. It just happens when it happens. And so, a grave warning. But you know, tough times bring life into perspective. 
That's, we we have, to, have to see that. But those times are useful to us. The house of mourning is not a time to be awash in emotions, but to think about there's a lot to learn from this. This is the time to really think, boy, am I doing what I need to be doing in my life? Am I living my life the way I should? Because this time will come to me as well. Am I taking things for granted in my life? Oh, how easily we do that. We take for granted people in our lives, relationships, friends, family. We just assume they'll always be there. We just assume we'll always have that relationship to exist. Don't do it. These are the times when we stop and realize, don't take life for granted. Don't take the precious things that we have with these relationships as if they will always be there. And unfortunately, pleasure causes us to forget. And I'm all for being in the house of pleasure. I don't like the house of mourning. I'm I'm like all of you. The house of mourning is absolutely no fun. Uh, Don't want to be there. Don't want to walk in there. Don't want to think about it. But the problem is the pleasure, the joy, the the -the run-of-the-mill day makes us forget what really matters. All the things that we do in life as we go through our jobs and we go through work and we go through uh, our hobbies and vacations and recreation and all the fun times that we have cause us to to forget one day we'll be accountable to God. One day we're going to lose every single person that we find very valuable with great relationship of great meaning in our life. One day it's going to happen. Live with the reality. Don't take it for granted. That fits with what Solomon is trying to tell us in Ecclesiastes 3. Appreciate the time. And so uh, I think these are very wise words as he reminds us then to be thoughtful, to be thinking about uh, what are you doing with your life? Are you ready to be standing before God? Have you said all that you needed to say to those who are around you? I think it's a sad thing how many times always there'll be, you know, the date lines in the news. Oh, I didn't get to tell them the things I wanted to tell them. Don't let that be you. You've, You've been warned. Don't take tomorrow for granted. Accept today, appreciate today, enjoy today, and know this might be it. This might be it. And enjoy it. Look at the next statement of wisdom, verse 5. It is better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen to the song of fools, for like the crackling of burning thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This too is futile. Uh, This is great because it almost fits our language today. Uh, As he describes uh, the laughter of of a fool, and he describes in verse 5 the the song of fools. The fool says things that are music to your ears. It's really uh, the picture there. Uh, The song of fools. They're going to say to you whatever you want to hear. We love to be surrounded by people who are going to tell us the things that we want to hear. Tell me that I'm doing right. Tell me everything that I'm doing is golden. We, we want those kind of people. We don't like people who are critical of us. We don't want people to correct us, uh, to show us a better way. We get very defensive about that. We get very upset about that. And I want you to see the picture here is that the fool makes a lot of noise. His words are like this, this burning of thorns, the crackling of... of it's going to be a lot of noise that come from the words of fools, but there's no value in them. You're just surrounded by a bunch of yes people. Think about that through the history of the kings of Israel. How many times they surrounded themselves with false prophets? 
That, that's all they wanted. They wanted somebody to always tell them, oh, the way that you want to go, sure, it's going to be great. You have God's approval. Go right ahead. And the kings of Israel constantly surrounded themselves with these kinds of people. And we have to be careful that we aren't the same way. We have to be careful that we aren't making that same kind of decision that, oh, well, uh, I, I don't know. I, I just want uh, people to tell me the things I, I want to hear. And if they tell me something I don't want to hear, I'm not going to listen. I found it uh, very humorous. The uh, just just caught last night on my recorder, uh, baby borrowers. <laughs> Nothing like having kids to take care of kids. So that's a that's a cute one. And one this one teenage girl, the mom had to finally come over and intervene and say, you know, you're about to starve my child today. And she, the teenager got all upset. And just had a little hissy fit in the bedroom of, oh, I can't believe she came over. She shouldn't have come over and told me to do that. Feel free to listen to wisdom. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> You're going to kill the poor kid if you don't feed him. <laughs> oh, no, don't tell me what to do. I know what's right. Boy, we are so arrogant. And we're teaching our kids to be so arrogant. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I, what I do is right. No, it's not. Oh, boy, we are in all sorts of fun in the future. If this is the way we're going to have our kids all raised and grow up, that well, what they know is best. You've got to be kidding me. We cannot have that attitude. We cannot exude that attitude. And we cannot teach others the attitude that, well, we're always right. Excuse me? You might be wrong. Listen to the rebuke of others. It's easy to listen to the song of fools. You want to go with the music to your ears. Listen to wisdom. There are people here who can help you. Uh, listen to what others have to say. It's easy. We've got, we've got kids. It's easy to always think, oh, well, they don't know. <laughs> you know, people before us, they, they, they raise their kids. They don't know. Well, listen to them. I'm trying to listen to you guys about what to do to these kids. <laughs> got to do that. We want to sit back and assume that we know that. We know all the scriptures. Don't want to listen to anybody else. I've got all the answers. No, no. Don't do that with the Bible. Don't do that with your life. Don't do that with anything. Quit assuming you're doing it right. Listen to other people. They've already done it. They've made all the mistakes. Do you think they want you to make the same mistakes? They've got wisdom. Listen. Pay attention. And so don't listen to people just because they agree with you. They're not going to help you. They're of absolutely no use to you whatsoever. What good would it have been for that mother to sit back watching the the closed caption of the, of the kid, you know, starving, starving, starving. It's just sit back and do nothing. No, no. You have to do something. It's time to act. So listen. Better to listen to correction and take those words to heart. Listen and accept correction. And don't be offended or upset uh, when we're told that we need to make changes. Uh, jump down to verse 8. Can't do all of the, the great words of wisdom. Hope you can backtrack and do some of the others. But for sake of time, we have to jump around in some of these. Uh, verse 8. The end of the matter is better than its beginning. A patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. Uh, this is a, a good one in verse 8. And he says, uh, uh, the end of the matter is always better than the beginning. There's, there's, there's a lot of points that probably could make, be made about that. I think one of the things that he might be observing is that everybody wants to start something, but very few people actually finish. 
I think that's probably one of the, the great observations of life is, uh, you know, everybody's got a great idea. But there's very few people who are willing to actually roll up the sleeves and actually accomplish it to bring that to fruition, to get the task done. I mean, you, you've been at the job. You know that's what it is. You're surrounded by people who've got all sorts of better ideas of what, what the boss is doing wrong, what the business is doing wrong, how, how your manager is terrible, and if I were manager, I'd be doing this, that, and whatever. But will you pick up a finger to do any of that? Oh, no. You're just full of brilliant ideas. <laughs> that's the way we are as humans. You think we've got it all figured out, but don't actually want to do the work to accomplish something. And he's pointing out there's a bit of satisfaction to finishing the work, accomplish the task. Start something, finish it. And I think that's, that's important. There's not lasting satisfaction in that, but Solomon has told us that many times so far. But I think all of us have felt the value of doing something that's difficult, challenging, hard, and getting to the end of it and going, all right, got that one done. Nice to check the box off and go, that, that's good. Good satisfaction there. Got that accomplished. And he just simply pointed that out. Do the task. What's the point of starting something if you're not going to finish? You know, there's no point in getting the big box uh, for the bicycle and you break open the box and the parts are strewn everywhere and you kind of attach a wheel to a, to a bar and go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't do any good. Set yourself to a task, accomplish the task, finish the task. Simple wisdom. But how often people don't want to do that? How often we don't want to accomplish that? And I, I think the next verse is the reason why. That the second part of the couplet in verse 8, where he says, the end of the matter is better than its beginning. Now watch what he says there. He says, a patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. I think there's the reason why. Is patience is being called for. To be able to accomplish a task, to get to the end of the matter, to, to get through the difficulty... Patience is going to be needed. And if it's anything like I am, when you get the some assembly required box, you break that thing open, you think you're doing pretty good for a while, and then you go, this isn't going very well. <laughs> Got things backward, things aren't looking right, it's not like the picture on the box, you know, no, no, this isn't going to be. And, and what you have going on is the, the battle of the proud. Well, it's not my fault. These things are written in Chinese. It's not my fault. Is it, you know, how can anybody understand this? Nobody could be able to accomplish this. And so with the arrogance begins to step in, and rather than the patience to accomplish it, we just kick it out the door. Ah, it's not my fault. Patience accomplishes the task. The, the well-known and somewhat silly story about a tortoise that took its great amount of time to finally get to the finish line. <laughs> We often are like the rabbit who start out quick, then we give up, we let go, we don't finish the task. And so he, he just brings the, the, the point that our, our, our pride often gets in the way. Our pride gets bruised, and that's why we don't accomplish the things that have been set before us. And so uh, when things get tough, exhibit patience. When things are difficult, when things are, are, are really a challenge in life, be patient. Work through the situation, and that's how you'll be able to accomplish much. When you think about that in spiritual terms, that's really, really important. In the long journey that we have in trying to get to God and reaching God, 
Patience is needed on the journey. You're not going to get there quickly. And we can start out of the gate so quickly and on fire. And we are zealous for God and we are going to serve God and we are going to light the world on fire and we are going to be students and we are going to be great at it. And it does not take long for those flames to get doused because of all the challenges of life and all the difficulties and all the things that go wrong and the trials that pop up and the suffering that comes in and Satan's temptations to railroad us. Understand it's going to take patience to get to the end. Understand it's going to take a lot of work to complete the task, to get to the end of the journey. God has not said that this was going to be simple or going to be easy, but patience will get us through. And that is the most important task that we have. In fact, when we get to the end of the book, the writer is going to tell us that is the whole duty that's been given to us. This is the whole of our task, is in serving God. And so, consider the need for patience. We have to suppress the pride. And understand, it's not going to go in life the way I want it to go. It's not going to be the way I think it should be. It's not going to be easy. But I need to continue to press forward in serving God. The final few bits of wisdom here from verses 9 through 14 are even shorter uh, bursts than the others. And just for the few minutes that we have left, I just want to quickly touch on some of them that you will put these other wise words in your mind. Verse 9, do not let your spirit rush to be angry. For anger abides in the heart of fools. Here is just a picture of the, the, is the fool who is so quick to anger. Control the anger. And so often we look like fools when we do not control our emotions. That's a, a, a very um, that's a very interesting thing in life that I've really begun to notice. Is that when we get angry and upset and emotional about these kinds of things, we think that we look perfectly acceptable to everybody else. And everybody else looks at us like a donkey. What a donkey for acting like that. It's so funny. I begin to really see that. that Everybody else goes, boy, what a fool. Do we think we're acting like a fool? Not at all. This is completely irrational and logical on our part. But everybody else scratches their head and says, boy, boy, immature, foolish, not useful. And so consider what he says there is, as he brings those words into our mind that anger abides in the heart of fools. Don't rush to anger. We need to be controlled. We need to keep our emotions in check. We need to keep the temper under wraps. Be mild and moderate and be able to have control of those things. And so wise words there for life, controlling anger. Look at verse 10. Here's another great little quick snippet. Don't say, why were the former days better than these? For it is not wise of you to ask this. Never does anybody say that the past is better than the present, right? Oh. <laughs> the good old days have always been the good old days. It cracks me up. And what an interesting statement by the teacher. Don't do that. Well, why not? Weren't the former days better? Hasn't the past been better? Oh, I think there's a couple of reasons why he's telling us not to do that. One, I've learned very quickly... You realize how selective a memory we really have? We have forgotten all the bad things that happened during that time. We forgot how hard it was during those situations. We only remember the highlights of the things that happened in the past. I can look back and I, oh yeah, high school was a blast. 
I didn't even think about that. No, there was actually some really tough stuff that happened in my life during that time. That was a really turbulent few years in my life, actually. I think back to Kentucky, oh, that was fun. I forget that there was this uh, massive softball-sized hailstorm in 1998 that blew up both of our cars, blew gl- glass everywhere, totaled them out. Well, we forget about that kind of stuff. We just remember, oh, man, that was, you know, that's a nice place to live. Made snowmen, you know, this is good. We have selective memory. That's the point. We don't remember how bad things really were then. There's people who grown up through the Depression and said, oh, that's the good old days. Really? <laughs> Not from what I've learned in history. <laughs> that was actually some pretty tough times. You have the country on economic collapse, if those were the good old days. You might have forgotten how challenging it was. You might have forgotten how difficult some of those times were. The second reason that he says that, though, not only do we forget, so what if they were better? What good does that do you now? Looking to the past gets you nowhere. Longing for the way things were won't accomplish anything. You want things the way they were? Do something about it. Change things. But pining for the past isn't going to accomplish anything. And so that's why I think he uses those words there in, in, in verse 10. It is not wise of you to ask this. What's the point? Why long for those days? Live now. We've already been spending so much time, the teacher's been spending so much time telling us, live now, appreciate now, enjoy now. You don't know when things are going to change. You have a limited amount of time. Life is but a vapor and a breath. Realize what you have now. And if you're wasting your precious seconds now, looking back to then, what good is that? You're wasting your life away. Appreciate what you have now. A couple more quick hits that he points out. Verse 11, wisdom is as good as an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection as money is protection. And the advantage of knowledge is that, the, is that wisdom preserves the life of its owner. Interesting point. Uh, wisdom is more valuable than wealth. He talked about already that worldly wisdom is not going to bring you lasting satisfaction. Going and dwelling on a mountain and, and uh, becoming the guru of all philosophy uh, is not going to bring you any satisfaction. It isn't going to change your life either. But understand that, that godly wisdom has value. We should not look at the scriptures and say, well, let's just throw all those things out. It's not going to do any good for me either. Not at all. Understand that godly wisdom actually gets you somewhere. Remember all those great, cute sayings? We did the lesson with uh, Oprah and Eckhart Tolle. You know, there's worldly wisdom for you. Uh, life in circles. <laughs> you know, statements that are mind-boggling that don't accomplish anything. You know, you always crack up with Confucius statements, right? These are, you know, silly, silly words of wisdom. Come on. Godly wisdom, however, change your life. Listen to what God has to say, and it's more valuable than wealth. It's going to help you far more than any amount of money you could possibly stow away. You want real help in this life. You want to live a good life. Do things God's way. God has an order. God has a sequence, and He tells you how to live your life. Do things His way, and you'll have a far easier way to go than doing things according to the world's way. Finally, verse 13 and 14. Consider the work of God, for who can straighten now what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider, without question God has made the one as well as the other, so man cannot discover anything that will come after him. 
This is a great statement. Uh, Consider the work of God, for who can straighten out what God has made crooked? Basically, that says God's made things a certain way and you can't change it. And you want to know what He says He's made a certain way that you can't change? Is that there's going to be days of prosperity and there's going to be days of adversity. Quit trying to change that. That's just the way it's going to be. You're going to have the great times and you're going to have the low times. And oh, when you're younger, you think, that's all going to be good times. This is going to be great. Life's just going to be a roller coaster. We're going to have all sorts of fun. It's going to be cake. Oh no. Brace yourself. Uh, life gets so much more fun with adversity. Uh, understand, hard times are going to come. And we saw the teacher tell us some of this, and he comes back to it again. Uh, when you're in these times, understand it's not going to always be that way. It will not always be prosperous. It will not always be adversity. You are in one state right now. Understand that will change. And so because of that, in the day of prosperity, you better enjoy it. Because it may not be that way tomorrow. In the day of prosperity, appreciate it, enjoy it. We talked about what the Solomon said a week or two ago. Spend it on your family. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. Appreciate what God has blessed you with. But understand, there will be a day of adversity. And when that day comes, he says, be thoughtful. Learn from those days. He says, consider. The days of adversity, that's kind of when we want to, you know, kick the dirt. We're upset. God, why is things so hard in my life right now? Why am I going through this suffering? Why am I going through these trials, adversity? And here's Solomon saying, don't, don't do that. But learn. Think about what you can learn from this situation. What, 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 how is this going to help you? Change your character. Make you more motivated to serve God. What are these difficulties in life going to do for you? Because he says it's not going to change. There's no sense in fighting against the reality that there will be days of prosperity and days of adversity. So you've got to quit fighting against that. Time to just accept that's life. Don't go against that. Who can change what God has made crooked? He made this one crooked. That's the way it's going to be. That's life. Accept it. And so in the good times, enjoy, and in the bad times, consider. Think about, what can, I, what can I learn from this? How can I be a better person from this? How is this making me more what God wants me to be? What can this do to make me a better servant of God? What is this going to do to change my life? You know, it's the trials that we learn. Isn't that what we just saw at the end of verse 1? We saw in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, the house of mourning. That's the time for reflection, the time of difficulty, the time of grief. That's when we think. That's when we learn. Appreciate the time. Doesn't mean it's going to be an enjoyable time, but appreciate the time. Recognize this time will change. Learn from it. Things will get better. The days of prosperity are ahead. And when the days of prosperity are here, enjoy it because, you know, the days of adversity are ahead. (laughs) So, whichever part you find yourself in, understand the opposite's coming. It will be here, and know it will come. Simply, life is full of cycles. God made it that way. So we accept life. Nod our head, and that's the way things will be. And understand we're looking forward to a greater place, a place to be with God, a place to be with the Lord eternally, forever and ever. We look forward to that time. As you pull your psalm books out, we're now singing an invitation song inviting you to the wise words of God. To understand that your life is short, things in life are always changing, there is no constant. The day of death is a certainty, there is no one that will avoid it. 
All of us must stand before God. All of us must reflect as we lose those who we dearly love around us. But understand, there is God, and we all must stand before Him. And those who have served Him with all their heart, and those who have relied upon Jesus Christ and have had their sins washed away, have a home of eternal life with God forever and ever. And we're comforted by those words. You too should be comforted by those words. If you will turn your life to Jesus Christ this very morning, turn away from the sins and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. It's your opportunity to walk with God and to be able to serve Him with all of your heart, to see that the things of this world offer no satisfaction, no lasting value. But the way of God does. Repent of your sins. Come to Him this morning while we stand and while we sing.